If we were to try to answer the question, why are we here? We would have to look to all the causes and conditions that have come together to weave this moment into being. And chief among them is your own aspiration and the decisions you made weeks or months ago to come to this retreat and to make plans at home, at work, and otherwise to be away. And there has been a lot of um, decision and energy put forth by each one of you to help um, make this happen. And so to all of the uh, SIMS organizers, board members, registrar, as well as the folks who own and operate this center. So we can see even in what we are immediately able to recognize that there's a lot of conditions coming together, without which this thing called the retreat wouldn't be happening. But there's another condition that's also significantly at play here, and I want to tell a story to reveal it. It is said that hundreds of thousands of lifetimes ago, which is a long time, uh, there was an ascetic named Sumedha. And Sumedha was a good yogi. And one day on his alms round in the village to get his daily food, he noticed that the village was all a flurry and a hubbub, and he inquired what was going on. And he was told that the Buddha, who was Dipankara Buddha at that time, was coming to town. And so he thought that he would like to meet Dipankara Buddha. So he got a place on the pathway leading into town that he prepared for when the Buddha would come by. And when Dipankara Buddha came into view, walking towards town, the ascetic Sumedha was struck by his demeanor, his bearing, his radiance, and understanding what a Buddha was, he was so inspired that he made a, an aspiration or a vow to himself that one day he too would like to become a Buddha in order to help others free themselves from suffering. Well, it just so happened that Dipankara Buddha noticed something going on with that uh, ascetic on the side of the road, and he did a quick scan of the Akashic records, or whatever it is, and said, hmm. And he confirmed to the ascetic Sumedha that he knew of his aspiration, 
or his um, intention, and that he would confirm then that ascetic Sumedha was now a bodhisattva, one who is destined to become a Buddha. It is said of the ascetic Sumedha that if he had heard a single teaching from that Dipankra Buddha, he would have become enlightened. He, his mind was that prepared already. But because he had made this vow, this aspiration to become a Buddha, he now became a bodhisattva who was on his way. And in order to become a Buddha, he voluntarily, we would say, took on hundreds of more lifetimes in order to perfect the qualities of an awakened mind, the qualities of a Buddha. And during those hundreds of lifetimes, he was born in all the realms uh, that the that Buddhists uh, have mapped out. Finding himself in the most challenging and difficult situations, in order to perfect what are known as the paramis, and the paramis are the qualities of awakened mind, generosity, renunciation, energy, truthfulness, uh, loving-kindness, equanimity, wisdom, and so forth. And when I mean to become a Buddha, to perfect them, it means that these qualities of mind had to become the default setting of his mind, meaning the first resort in a challenging situation would be to be loving, patient, truthful, generous, wise, renunciate. Hundreds of lifetimes later, the stream of being of that ascetic was born in India 2,500 years ago as Prince Siddhartha, and we know the story from there. After 29 years living in his father's, under his father's guidance, uh, he wandered off, did his six years of spiritual, austere, severe spiritual discipline, awoke to become the Buddha of our time, Gotama Buddha. He then was 35 years old and he taught for 45 years to the whole range of men, women, royalty, beggars, merchants, monks, renunciates, nuns around him for 45 years. And it wasn't easy. If you read about the life of the Buddha, it was, t it was a hassle. <laughs> to be quite honest. It was a hassle. Nevertheless, that is what he took on. And for 2,500 years since his teaching, what he taught has been handed down from teacher to student who hears, practices, realizes, and hands it down to another student until it arrives in Burma in the 20th century and Mahasi Sayadaw teaches Saito Upandita, and Saito Upandita teaches me, and it doesn't stop there. Part of the reason that we are here 
tonight. And one of the conditions giving rise to our being here is that vow made by the ascetic Sumedha so far distant in the past we've lost historical record of it. That is one of the conditions weaving this moment into being. So when I talk about causes and conditions giving rise to experience, some are obvious, some we know, and there are many buried in the past, the far reaches of the past, and infinite time, uh, and infinite space that we just cannot account for. But we can see from this story that without that ascetic's vow, without Gautama Buddha, we wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be happening. So we might ask, what is it that made that vow, that intention of that ascetic so powerful as to have this type of consequence so many eons and centuries later? Because let's face it, you and I have intentions to do things every day. <laughs> we have all kinds of intentions to do things. And, and, and most of those, a lot of those intentions don't go beyond the day, let alone a week or more. So what made that intention so powerful? Intentions is karma. Intention is action. It's what we think, it's what we speak, it's what we do. These are all forms of karma that are conditioned by and fueled by intention in the mind. Without that intention, we don't speak, we don't act, we don't think. We've all heard of the law of karma. It has kind of woven itself into contemporary uh, understanding, or maybe I should say a misunderstanding of the law of karma has woven itself into contemporary use. I want to speak about karma tonight because it is such a powerful ally in our practice. To give you a brief tutorial on karma. The law of karma is not a law that a man or a Buddha made, but rather like the law of gravity. It is the way things are. But the law of gravity was articulated by Newton, maybe, the <laughs> apple guy, when he, when he saw and observed the way things are, and understood it. Oh, this apple falls because of gravity. And he postulated and articulated, and it was later confirmed, that the law of gravity states, you know, things that go up must come down. Something like that. Well, there are those among us, beings, humans, who have spent their whole life observing the unfolding of the mind lifetimes, 
observing the unfolding of the mind. And what they see, or what they have discovered as the lawful unfolding of the mind, is articulated as the law of karma, which says, if you act, if you speak, act, or think, from a place of attachment, aversion, and delusion, or delusion, the result, the karmic result, will be unpleasant, will be felt as some unpleasant experience. On the other hand, if one acts from a place rooted in kindness, generosity, understanding, the karmic result will be felt as physically and mentally pleasant. It also goes on to say that powerful intentions give rise to powerful effects. Insignificant intentions give rise to insignificant effects. Every action, every thought, every time we speak, every action we do physically produces or conditions many different results. And every result that we feel, every pleasant and unpleasant experience that we feel now, is the result of innumerable prior karmic actions. Whether we believe it or not, the law of karma operates at all time. It is inert when we're asleep. Okay. The right view of karma, understanding the law of karma, I'm not saying you have to believe it, but at least give ear to listen to see if you can understand it, is important because it's a powerful ally in our practice. If we understand the law of karma, we have a way of understanding the pleasant and unpleasant feelings that we experience. We are cautioned and encouraged to pay attention to the intentions of our speaking and acting. It also gives us an understanding of how decisions are made that affect our life. Why is it we make decisions the way we do? Out of habit or out of wisdom? It's a way of understanding the difficult and challenging conditions in our life, which we just have no other way of understanding. Why is it that we have to face some of the conditions, some of the experiences we do? <clears throat> now. There are many footnotes to the Law of Karma. And we sometimes read in the stories of people down in the time of the Buddha of karmic actions producing certain results. Now, I don't know if it's true. 
you know, if you ask me, do I believe in the law of karma, I would have to say, I do not have kind of uh, Western scientific method, logical proof. No. But I notice that I live my life as if the law of karma were true. And the Buddha said of the law of karma, it is one of those great, one of the four great imponderables. It's something you really can't figure out the karmic actions giving rise to this effect, nor can we know the karmic result of the actions that we make or that we take. So he's saying, here, take a look at this. Better believe it, but you can't figure it out. Okay. So, if all of our thoughts, speech, and actions are karma, we should look carefully at what is this intention that motivates our speech, our thoughts, and actions. When I talk about intention, I'm talking about two, two elements. Two elements. The first is the kind of the rational, logical reasoning why we do something. And it can spring from greed or aversion or understanding or generosity. But it's not always easy to know why we do or say what we do or say. You may know of others or you may see yourself taking actions obsessively, compulsively, addictively that are harmful to you. Why do we do that? Well, the force of habit is so strong that our understanding, our wisdom, whatever level of wisdom it is, is not strong enough to oppose it. Ooh. That gives us pause to take a quick look, take a continuing look, really, at why we do what we do. And it's an important piece of our practice here, is to really look at the moment when you're about to do something. Where's it coming from? Why? What is the motivation for doing it? Is it to get away from something? Is it to secure something? Is it just out of confusion? Because whatever action we take is a karmic act. So there's the rationale for doing what we do. Difficult to see, even in the best of times. There's also the moment when the impulse strikes us to speak, to act. Sometimes we recognize it when we think. And this too is an important experience to begin to recognize in our practice. Because impulse or the intention to speak or do arises out of you know, the stream of the mind. And while we can be sitting here perfectly content and, and well, content, I don't know if we're content, but we can be sitting here at least pretty still and all kinds of impulses arise in our mind, to do this, to do that, to think this, to think that. And this practice instructs us to begin to pay attention to them. Not to suppress them, 
and, and not even to deny or to refuse to act them out, but at least to see them. Because in the moment of seeing the impulse, we have a choice. We can decide to follow through or not. And in that moment of reflection, mindfulness will tell us whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, whether it's a skillful thing to do or an unskillful thing to do. That is the role of mindfulness. It's to see the impulse and then to see the quality of the intention. Is it wholesome or unwholesome? And if it's unwholesome, we have that space of the mind to exercise restraint and not just follow through out of deeply habituated pattern. And if we see that moment, we can apply our wisdom and understanding and choose to follow through on wholesome and renounce or let go of what is unwholesome. What makes an intention powerful? We sit down several times a day in here to practice mindfulness. And hopefully you sit down and you remind yourself, I'd like to be mindful for the next 45 minutes. That's an intention. You know, you're, you're asking your mind, you're telling your mind, this is the intention, this is what I want to do. How powerful is that intention? Well, sometimes it lasts for a few seconds. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. But sometimes we remember frequently throughout the sitting, and sometimes we don't. It doesn't take much to see that intentions are very, well, they're also impermanent. They're very ephemeral. They're as impermanent as everything else. And so what, how do we make an intention powerful? There are a few conditions. The first is how much energy, interest, zest, and the health of the mind. If the mind is energetic, if you have an energetic mind and you have intentions, then there's more power to the intention if your mind is very dull and tired and sleepy and, or, 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 or the body is sick and the mind is weak, intentions aren't so powerful. They're really very weak. Which is why when we're sick and, I've heard, when we are approaching our death, intent, we can't count on our intentions to do the work for us. The mind is so weak that there's not a lot of power behind any intention when we're sick and when we're approaching death. The second element of intention is how frequently you have the intention. Well, that makes sense. If you repeatedly arouse the intention to do something and you follow through, it becomes a habit. And it just comes again and again and again. And in time, good habits can be established in the mind. But, as we know, sometimes we have to prompt ourselves 
over and over and over again, or remind ourselves over and over and over again before the intention has any momentum on its own. And the third element in <coughs> determining the power of an intention is the purity of the mind. And purity of the mind means how free the mind is from attachment, aversion, and delusion. Now why is that important? A mind that is confused and entangled in, you know, agendas and aversions and preferences doesn't see clearly the means to the desired end. And so it can have all kinds of intentions that are irrelevant and insignificant for achieving or reaching the intended goal. But when the mind is clear, when the mind is pure, when, there's, when the mind is filled with awareness, really, mindfulness, and there's no attachment, there's no aversion, and there's no delusion, the mind sees this is the means to reach the desired end. And so the mind is not wasting energy on irrelevant uh, intentions and, and scattered. It's not dispersed. It's very focused. And it chooses the right intention to effect the desired result. And so the purity of the mind has a tremendous uh, effect on the power of our intentions, which is why it's so important to do retreats. Because in a retreat like this, we work hard. We work really hard to purify the mind, to clean the mind a little bit of some attachment, aversion, confusion, delusion. We get a little clear. And in that space of the clarity of mind, we see clearly the direction we want our life to go. We see. We really want to go towards less suffering. And it's not always easy how to get there, or which decisions or which intentions to fuel in order to suffer less. But with the clarity of the mind in retreat and through being saturated, we could say, with the wisdom of the Dharma, we make wise choices. We set our spiritual compass according to what we see with the clarity of our mind, and then we fuel the intentions to move in that direction. Later, when we come out of retreat and our minds get clouded and you know, we get kind of, uh, the, the mindfulness fades away or it's not as strong. We can still remember what we saw, what we aspired to, and we can keep moving in that direction. But it's so important to have the clarity of mind to see initially or in a sustained way where our actions are taking us. When we say that karmic actions 
condition results. It's as if each action that we make or that we take plants a seed in the mind. But just like an apple seed doesn't really have an apple tree in it, neither does the karmic seed have a karmic result in it. Just like an apple seed, it has the potential to produce an apple tree. Just like the karmic seed has the potential to produce the karmic fruit. But, just as an apple seed isn't enough alone to produce an apple tree that produces additional fruit, it needs supportive conditions. It needs soil, it needs sun, it needs fertilizer, it needs water, it needs tending. And then with a lot of good luck, or I should say supportive conditions, maybe you'll get an apple tree and additional apple fruit. So too with our karmic seeds. They're planted in the mind. Our karmic seeds are planted in the soil of our mind. If the mind is healthy soil, then healthy seeds will grow. If they're supported, if they're nurtured, if they're cared for and tended, if they have supportive conditions. It matters what the quality of our mind is because uh, a developed mind, a pure mind, is fertile. And uh, a mind that is kind of locked into habits doesn't receive wholesome seeds very well. Wholesome seeds that land in a dirty mind or in a mind that is just kind of corrupted with defilements, they don't get much support to sprout. But think of it this way. Here, now that we are in the process of purifying our mind, it allows prior wholesome karmic actions to bear fruit now. So all of our prior karmic, dharmic endeavors and wholesome karmic actions come to support our dharma practice here. If any one of you were ever involved in a life of crime, living on the edge, living over the edge, involved in a life of crime, your prior dharmic actions, dharma karma, you, you wouldn't be interested in bearing fruit. And it would have no opportunity. The mind is not ripe for the, the sprouting of wholesome karma. But when we put our mind in a wholesome place, then it draws to it wholesome karmas, meaning we get to experience pleasant physical and mental results. That's the result of wholesome karma. Even though we have wholesome intentions, we can't always make the karmic result happen. We can't make it. It needs support. I remember when I first, um, after my first retreat, I went to the meditation center. And during the, the three-month retreat in 77, I think it was, 
this Burmese monk came to the meditation center in Massachusetts. His name was Tongkulu Sayadaw. And without going into a long history about him, well, he, he spent 33 years in a cave alone doing, doing meditation practice. Came out, came to America to teach us what he knew. <laughs> I'd done two weeks and I was really interested to hear. <laughs> he was just a short, wizened old guy, quite old at that time. And living in the cave, he damaged his eyesight, had to wear sunglasses day and night. But somehow he was so inspiring. And I realized I wanted what he had. I, want, I don't know what it was, you know. But I saw him in a room like this with several times. He'd do a group interview with 30, 40 people. Come into a room. He doesn't know anybody. He doesn't speak English. He looks around the room and he says, Are you a doctor? They were. Are you a doctor? They were. Every time. And they weren't wearing scrubs. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a display for us of the quality of mind, the capacity of the mind. And I was well, impressed. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't really want to go live in a cave for 33 years, but somehow I appreciated, I valued, I honored, I respected what he'd done and the development of mind that was the result. And so in my own naive way, I wanted to be a monk. I didn't know what a monk was. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. He was, was the first monk I'd ever seen. I don't know how, what, what they do or don't do. Or, I don't know anything. But I wanted to be a monk. It took eight years before conditions ripened to allow me to go to Burma, ordain and become a monk. It just took, you know, just getting my act together, getting my dharma together, getting some practice together, getting some knowledge and, and, and just feeling confident enough to actually go and do it. And so even though we have wholesome intentions and we may have strong desire, good, good chanda. If conditions aren't there, it won't happen. This encourages us to be patient, to really be patient. Nurture your aspirations. Nurture. You have an aspiration for anything wholesome, nurture it. So that when conditions come around to support it, you'll have the, uh, uh, the decision will be made. You know, you'll already have developed the aspiration, the intention, the encouragement, the uh, interest in doing it. And when conditions support it, you'll take advantage of the, of the opportunity. But if we push, if we prematurely push, jump, try to get ahead, whatever, we just make difficulty and trouble for ourselves. Now, there's one important piece to understand about the law of karma. The law of karma is not predestination. It's not that what you've done determines what you'll do, or what you'll become, or what you'll experience. But rather, 
prior actions have an influence on or they condition along with many other conditions what one will experience. It's not right to say that we are condemned by our past. We're not. But the law of karma offers us an opportunity to co-create our future. Of course, there are many other biological, chemical, genetic, cultural forces of conditioning in our life. And we can't escape them either. They, ex they too exert powerful conditioning influence on everything that we experience, everything that we do. Karma is one, is also a conditioning influence on what we experience and what we do. So it's important to understand it in that way, that it is one among many karmic condi uh, conditioning elements. But it's an important one. During the time of the Buddha, and even now, we might wonder, why is it that some beings are healthy, some are sickly, some are wealthy, some are poor, some are really bright, some are rather dull, some are, some, you know, kids die really young, and some people live, well, way beyond their time. <laughs> and the Buddha understood karma, and he said, if in the future you wish to live a long life, then now you should perform the wholesome karma of non-harming. If in the future you want to be healthy, you should perform the wholesome karma of, oh, non-harming, the, the prior one was not killing. If you want to live a long time, not killing. If in the future you wish to be beautiful, then practice loving-kindness. <coughs> if in the future you wish to be wealthy, live with a life of abundance, then now practice generosity. If you wish to be wise, and it is wisdom that liberates the mind. If in the future you wish to be wise, now we must practice investigation, curiosity, and questioning. What we're doing with our practice is looking deeply into the unfolding of the mind. We're really looking at how is this happening? How is the mind unfolding? We're inquiring into how habits take over the day, how to develop mindfulness, how mindfulness develops wisdom. We're seeking to understand the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, the natural activity of the mind, and the unfolding of insight through our efforts to observe, to understand, we will grow in wisdom. The karmic result is greater understanding. And it is understanding that frees the mind from defilements, resulting in liberation. The time 
or the timing of karmic results is both immediate and long-term. We know that when we get angry, we don't have to wait long before we feel the unpleasant effects of that anger. And it's not because the other person hits us. It's because our own body and mind is unpleasant, and we feel it. And every time we recall that situation, we relive it. We reconnect with the unpleasantness of the mind, of the body. And so too with every other unwholesome action. The more powerful it is, the more unpleasant the result. But so too with wholesome actions. If you want to be immediately happy, practice generosity. Lately I've gotten into the habit of connecting with street people. There's a lot of people on the street due to causes and conditions, well, outside of their immediate control. Some of the conditions they have something to say about, but a lot of times, you know. And whatever, at times, pitiful situation they appear to be in by their demeanor and their clothing and their behavior and their what, whatever, there is a human being there, every one of them. And to stop and to connect with them and to just have a moment of connection and to offer them something, anything. It's not so much what you offer for a dollar, two, whatever. It's the love. What you're giving that person is love. And it comes back instantly. It feels good. You, you can't help but feel good. If you, if you really practice coming from a wholesome place of just really wanting that person to be happy. So I've gotten to asking them, what would you like? You know, well, it happened that the first, the first person that, that I asked this to, he came up to me and says, oh, no, no, no. <coughs> uh, you got any money? I says, oh, um, uh, how much would you like? He says, oh, a couple dollars. I got to do my laundry. <laughs> I said, okay. So I get out my wallet, and he could see I had more than a couple of dollars. And he said, oh, how about 20? <laughs> I said, oh, no, wait. You just asked for two. Here it is. Thank you. So every once in a while, I'll come up, uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask someone, and they'll say, oh, you know, $5, $10. Okay, I'll give them $5, $10. No, I can afford that. I was recently in San Diego, my granddaughter's uh, high school graduation. And I was feeling expansive and generous, taking the family out to the restaurant. And outside the restaurant were two guys about my age, Viet Vets, uh, really not in a pleasant condition. So I said to him, how you doing? Oh, you know. I says, oh, uh, <coughs> how much would you like? He says, hmm, $100. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I said, you know, do you think that's reasonable? He said, okay, how about 60 
you know, the story is, the moral of the story is, there's a human being there. And when you connect with them, I assume they feel good. I certainly do. It's, it's so rewarding. I mean, so often we see, you know, we're kind of bothered by and kind of pestered by homeless people and just rather kind of like avoid them or just not even see them. That's a karmic act. That's a karmic act. And to engage them is also a karmic act. It's our life. We get to co-create our life in every moment. It's not a given, but we have the opportunity. Our karma offers us the opportunity in every moment to be happy, to be, you know, uh, to experience pleasant mental and physical experience, or not. It's our choice. Twenty bucks. <laughs> it is said that, uh, as I mentioned, that wholesome karmic actions are experienced as pleasant physical and mental experience. That's the karmic result. What we experience as pleasant physical and mental whatever it is, you know, uh, just the conditions of our life, good food, good climate, uh, good health, um, you know, what, whatever, is wholesome, is the result of wholesome karmic actions. Interestingly, Western psychologists have discovered that the single most effective intervention for engendering a feeling of well-being is to acknowledge your gratitude. To acknowledge your gratitude. What are you grateful for? You know, and if we, if we look at our life, we have so much to be grateful for. It's just endless, the amount of good conditions we live with. As I mentioned the other night, as bad as it gets, we're still at the top of the heap. All we have to do is remember that. Just daily count your blessings. Recall all that we have to be grateful for. And you'll feel good. You will have an enduring sense of well-being that with, can withstand the daily ups and downs and trials and tribulations. Th th those things come and go. But the sense of well-being remains. What it takes is remembering mindfulness of what we're grateful for. Simple karmic act. It's just a thought. It's not even like you have to do anything. We just have to remember to recount our blessings. But it's such a powerful karmic act that we immediately feel a sense of well-being that's enduring. The law of karma is not only about, you know, lifetimes in the past, lifetimes in the future. It's about, it's a, it's a powerful ally 
in our practice of awareness here and now. It gives us every opportunity to be happy. Don Juan, that great Dharma teacher of the last century, said to Carlos Castaneda, the ordinary man or woman sees events in life as either a blessing or a curse. But the man or woman of knowledge sees every event as an opportunity for wisdom and liberation. It's just how you look at it. If you, if you want to see that homeless person on the street as a problem, what a curse, oh God, I've got to deal with them. You can. Or you can see it as just an opportunity to, to, to gain knowledge, self-knowledge about yourself, wisdom, liberation. It's our choice. Every time. Every day we are faced with, we have innumerable opportunities like this. Take them. As, as uh, you know, the, the English woman who was a Tibetan nun, she spent 12 years in the cave up in the Himalayas. She says, in spiritual practice, there are no obstacles, only opportunities. When we see our life like that, we really make good use of, our, of the karmic results that were offered. There's one more element of the law of karma that I want to share with you. It is said that it is of greater karmic consequence to commit an unskillful act without knowing it will cause pain and suffering than to do something intentionally that you will know will cause pain and suffering. Now, it's a little bit counterintuitive. You know, we think, well, if I don't know that something's, you know, going to cause harm, then I do it well, not, 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 not so bad. But if you know that something is unskillful to do, and you do it anyway, oh, big baddie. But actually, the Buddha say it's just the opposite. Why? If you don't know that something is unskillful, if you really are ignorant of it. You don't know that what you're saying or what you're doing is going to cause pain or harm to yourself or others. You don't know that, and you do it. You do it with reckless abandon, a lot of energy. You do it frequently, no second thoughts, no regrets, no remorse. You just do it with full energy. Of course, the karmic result of that, the unwholesome action, the unpleasant results is going to be, is going to be very great. On the other hand, if you know something is a little bit dicey, it's a little bit shady, it's not quite fully, you know, kind of Buddhist kosher, <laughs> whatever that would be, karmically wholesome. But, you know, you just say, oh, what the heck, I'll take on the burden of the unwholesome karma, and I'll do it anyway. When you do that unwholesome karmic action, you do it kind of hesitantly, you give it a lot of second thoughts, you reconsider it, you do it hesitantly without much energy, you don't take much enjoyment in it, and then after doing it you have a lot of regret and remorse. 
all of which serves, which are wholesome actions serving to mitigate the unwholesome karmic results. Huh. What this tells us is knowledge and wisdom is really important. Knowing what is wholesome and what is wholesome, unwholesome is supreme. How are we going to get that knowledge? Where are we going to learn what is genuinely wholesome and unwholesome? You know, because every moment we're offered opportunities in our mind, in our environment, in our relationships, to say, it, you know, just to say what we've heard, you know, is that going to be wholesome or unwholesome? Are we subtly manipulating people's relationships and emotions? Are we offering something to this person with the expectation we're going to get something back? You know, it, the, our, our life is filled with very subtle distinctions about between wholesome and unwholesome. The only way we know for ourselves, absolutely, whether what we're about to do or say or think is wholesome or unwholesome is to be mindful. Mindfulness is the inner mentor that will tell you this causes suffering to yourself or others or it doesn't. That's why mindfulness is the key. Mindfulness is the absolute essential ingredient for living a wholesome life. And as a result of that, enjoying the pleasant results of a life, a wholesome, of living a wholesome life. Because it is mindfulness. I mean, there are many guides, there are many how-to, why-to books and lists and, you know, they're on the rack right by the checkout counter as you go out the grocery store. How to, why to. <laughs> and every religion has their prescript prescriptive list. But you know, the subtlety of what we deal with every day isn't on anybody's list. It's only in our own mind. And that's where mindfulness is essential. If we understand the law of karma, we have reason to practice mindfulness and we have the knowledge to practice more skillfully. It is our mind that is affected, that feels the karmic result. It's our mind that feels pleasant and unpleasant, physical and mental. And so what we do with our mind what actions we take, what we speak, what we think, what we, what intentions move our body to do, will be felt in the mind, will be felt with the mind. And we know from observing over the last few days how painful the body and mind can be. We have a choice. to plant seeds that sprout in pleasant states or plant seeds that sprout in unpleasant states. 
This is why we practice. So let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.